The Italian Wine Podcast is introducing a new donation drive this month. It's called Why Am I a Fan? We are encouraging anyone who tunes in on a regular basis to send us your 10-second video on why you are a fan of our podcast network or a specific show. We will then share your thoughts with the world with the goal of garnering support for our donation drive. Italian Wine Podcast is a publicly funded, sponsor-driven enterprise that needs you in order to continue to receive awesome free wine edutainment seven days a week. We are asking our listeners to donate to the Italian Wine Podcast by clicking either the GoFundMe link or the Patreon link found on italianwinepodcast.com. Remember, if you sign up as a monthly donor on our Patreon, we will send you a free IWP t-shirt and a copy of the Wine Democracy book, the newest Mama Jumbo Shrimp publication. Italian Wine Podcast, a Wine to Wine Business Forum 2021 media partner, is proud to present a series of sessions highlighting the key themes and ideas from the two-day event held on October the 18th and 19th. 2021. This hybrid edition of the Business Forum was jam-packed with the most informed speakers discussing some of the hottest topics in the wine industry today. For more information, please visit winetowine.net and tune in every Thursday at 2 p.m. Central European Time for more episodes recorded during this latest edition of Wine to Wine Business Forum. warm hello from Geisenheim to Verona. My colleague Matthias Schmidt and I would have preferred to be there personally, but unfortunately we are still in the heat of harvest and the lectures have started, so we had to stay home, but hopefully there will be another time for us to come. Well, we are going to share the presentation today and uh, we will be talking about the challenges in the production of low and alcohol-free wines. Um, after the introduction, we will touch on the legal aspects and then my colleague will take over and speak to you about the technology, some sensory aspects and also possibilities and logical strategies to improve quality and also a project which is just going on here in our region in, in Rheingau. First of all, let me say there are several reasons for the partial alcohol reduction in wine, such as a market demand. And we can see that this is dramatically increasing. And also there are legal aspects there, which we will be touching on. There is partly a sensory imbalance, and we can also see fermentation problems. And from these points, you can already see that there will be two different products or product categories in the future. There will be the wines where we see a reduction in alcohol, but there will also be products with no alcohol. And there we will apply different technologies and there are also different legal aspects. Here you can see that the problem is, and sorry, part of that is in German, but you can see here on the side, it's the translation into English. We actually see two different problems. On the one side, since the beginning of the 80s, there's a steady increase in the alcohol content. And at the same time, we see that the uh, acidity is going down and therefore the pH is going up. And that, of course, has a very strong influence on 
how to stabilize the product later on in, in the bottle. What can we do? How can we deal with the problem on the one side, too much alcohol, but on the other side also not, not enough acidity or too high pH in there. This is pretty much the same thing, showing you that there is an increase in the density here. This is for Eltville, which is a small city here in Rheingau. So the, the density is increasing and the uh, acidity is actually going down. It also shows you that there is a very strong fluctuation going on. So it's not that there is a steady increase in the sugar content or a steady decrease, but we, we will see more and more years with extremes, as we saw this year, for example. And that very often, unfortunately, serves a little bit as an excuse why we should not uh, deal with climate change or that there is really no problem because very often these extremes are used to really sort of, uh, as I said, find an excuse why we should not be doing something. And of course, as you can see, this is definitely not the case. Here, another overview how the sugar levels and the potential alcohol in Germany is going up beginning with 2001 and ending in 2018. And again, you can see there were years where we had lower and higher sugar concentrations, but in general, we can see that there is a steady increase in the alcohol content in our products. Well, what does that mean? Very often we hear that people then argue, well, you know, if we have too much sugar in our grapes, then why don't you just harvest a little bit earlier? And then the problem is actually solved. We can do everything in the vineyard and you don't have to do anything in the cellars. And here we can only respond that wines made from insufficiently ripe grapes are from a sensory point of view, not very harmonious. They have more problems with the untypical aging and they have much lower um, nitrogen components in the must so that there's also a problem with a very good fermentation going on. Also, the aroma components generally increase with ripeness. So we are really waiting for uh, so-called physiological ripeness to really get the best aroma out there. And in very many trials, which we've uh, done over the last years, we could show that when we harvest earlier, that the, the loss in aroma is much, much higher than using later on a technical intervention to reduce alcohol, but therefore keep the aromas. So the great, there's a great potential to increase or maintain the wine and sparkling wine quality. I think it might be also interesting for you to see that this is not only a problem which we have to deal with in, in Europe. Uh, here on the right hand side, you can see this is an example from the, from the uh, state of Rheinland-Pfalz with the very famous region of Mosel. And uh, here you can see that the same thing is happening. The sugar concentrations are just going up in general. As you can see here already starting in the 70s and then ending here in 2012. What does that mean? It means that the typicity of the wines coming from these regions has changed. So the lighter style, particular the, where the Mosel was famous for, that's not really existing anymore. And the question which is coming out of this is, are we going to adapt to new wine styles or 
should we do something in the cellar to be able to keep the wine styles we are used to? And this is something the market will have to answer in the future. But here, which is also interesting to see, is that the same problem is happening in California. Look, 1971, the general or the average alcohol content was somewhere around 12.5%. And in 2001, it was already close to 15%. And it didn't stop there. It went on. And this is also an explanation why in California, the alcohol reduction in wine was really one of the, the first areas where it really was been used in a wider range in the, from the entire production side there. And uh, I think this is a very interesting um, argument or factor which we should keep in mind here. So, but as I already mentioned, um, it will not going, it will not stop somewhere. And here is a prediction of what can happen in, in Geisenheim here in our region if in a warm scenario, it keeps on going the way as it is what happened over the years. And you can see that in this year 2000, this is measured in our German um, weight, which is called Oechsle. You see here we have somewhere around 83 uh, Oechsle on average. And for 2090, it's already 90, 93. So it doesn't appear to be much, but again, it's an average. And in some regions, we can see that and in particular for Riesling, this is a little bit complicated because when you end up with products which have all of a sudden 15 and more percent alcohol, it's not really very typical for that kind of product anymore. Of course, for many, many years, it was very positive for us because in general, the wine quality improved. And I know this is a little bit an, a difficult uh, overview to read, but therefore to make it a little bit um, easier for you, we could, it was calculated that one degree temperature increase related to an additional 21.5% uh, for Rhine in the 100 point scheme, sorry, for Rhine wine, uh, about 21% for Mosel, 20, close to 13 points for Burgundy, and also 10 uh, points more for the Bordeaux region. So again, for a longer period of time, it was really mm, more on the positive side. But now we have sort of reached the peak and it's getting a little bit too much. So we have to do something about it to really be able to continue making the wines we are used to. So there is a need for technologies to reduce the alcohol content. And from a legal point of view, there are not so many possibilities available right now. We can use it by, we can do it by using uh, heat, which is normally distillation under vacuum or a rectification under vacuum. For example, spinning cone column, which is quite famous now. But we can also use membrane technologies, for example, a reverse osmosis, normally in combination with a distillation or some other a possibility to really extract or get the alcohol out, or we can use pervaporation. From a theoretical point of view, there are also other solutions possible, like organic solutions. We can could work with uh, some CO2 or resins or, you know, some possibilities to really sort of very selectively reduce the alcohol content. But those 
solutions are not legal yet. So they have not been accepted by the OIV and we cannot use them so far in the, yeah, in the production. Currently, what uh, is still defined, and you will see in a minute that there will be some changes coming in the future. So we have defined alcohol-free wines for products which have lower alcohol levels than 0.5%. And then we have the partially alcohol-reduced alcohol wines, which are somewhere between half a percent up to 4% alcohol. And uh, they are also called partially alcohol-reduced wines. And then we have the product wine, where we are already allowed to reduce 20% of the existing alcohol and no declaration. So that product is still called wine. But also there is a gap between 4% and 8.5% alcohol. And we can see more and more that there is a need in the market for having products which are just somewhere in the middle. One reason for that is that it might taste better. And on the other side, there's also the possibility of consuming products with lower alcohol content. What is already necessary here, and that will also be, uh, that will be coming in the future for wine in general, that we have to put on the label, uh, what are the calories? And so it's treated like a, like food stuff, but also not what is the, only the calories, but also what are, for example, the, what's the sugar content, what are, what's the fat content, uh, proteins, and so on. As you can see that here as well. And sorry, this is in German, but we were not able to find a label right now in English. So there will be a change coming, at least in the EU. It's not been published yet, but in the future, there are no alcohol-free wines in the market allowed anymore. So up to 0.5% alcohol, it will be called de-alcoholized. Uh, why not alcohol-free? Because from a consumer side protection, they believe that there are still some uh, small contents of alcohol in there, and it would be not correct to say it's alcohol-free because there is it's a possibility that up to 0.5% alcohol might be in the product. So up to, as I said, 0.5% alcohol, it will be de-alcoholized. And also the 20% reduction of existing alcohol will still be called wine. So there will be no change here, but and that will be new that uh, in the future, and sorry, here's uh, here's a mistake somehow, um, that should be percent. If you uh, reduce more than 20% alcohol in the future, it will be called partially dealcoholized. So that gap between 4% and 8.5% that will disappear in the future. And I think that is really very interesting for the market because there are very many new products possible and uh, I think that the consumer might be very interested in that. Of course, there are a lot of different technologies available here, some to produce wines with a lower alcohol level, but also wines or products with no alcohol, or let's say below 0.5%. And my colleague, um, Dr. Matthias Schmidt, he will now continue and talk about the different possibilities.
Okay. Um, as indicated, um, I'm talking now about the different technologies. And when it comes to those different technological methods to remove either partially or nearly completely the alcohol, there are a lot of misunderstandings and, um, yeah, partly wrong information around. And our idea, no matter if you like that or not, the technology, technology or the technological intervention, we just want to give you a scientific basis on what is possible and especially on what is not possible to turn down the alcohol with. So we will start here with, um, yeah, technologies called as vacuum distillation or specifically like in these two cases to the left or to the right hand side rectification columns. So this is a continuous counter steam distillation where we have just a short time of the wine within that's plant. So within two minutes, the wine is completely dealkalized. Um, due to the fact that we work under a vacuum, we can work at really mild process temperatures. So with Around about 30 to 35 degrees Celsius, we are able to dealkalize a wine completely. So this will give us an alcohol-free wine. Or if we just treat the subload, then we turn down severely the alcohol. And with the initial wine, we can do a blend so that we just partly have the alcohol reduced. Those plants, they are, as you see here, clearly not mobile. Um, they are in a yeah, sealed or closed system, like you see here. That's a bit of a speciality in, in Germany due to taxation laws. In other countries, it is also in a bit more open system. Smaller plants theoretically allow also the possibility um, to move them a bit. Um, we have in Germany several um, companies working with such plants, and they are, um, and I go back once again, um, state-of-the-art when it comes to the processing of alcohol-free beer, but also alcohol-free cider and alcohol-free wine. That is the most widely applied technology there. Um, but they are quite on a large scale. So they require minimum 1,000 liters an hour. Usually nowadays, as there's quite a lot of um, wine produced or dealkalized by those plants, they require a lot of minimum 5,000 liters so for just doing pre-trials or i want to enter the market just with a smaller lot and try that's not that easy if we think about the two percent alcohol reduction by such a plant due to the back plants and use all the wine completely that would mean that you need a lot of totally minimum 7500 liter and when you think about maybe terra ideas or or keep plants or, or lots separate that's all already quite a big lot, especially for, for smaller wineries. Um, as we produce here a wine fraction that is nearly completely reduced in alcohol, so below 0.5% usually, there's also a side fraction. And the side fraction is theoretically to be used as a brandy, or at least it's, it's a spirit. Um, and when we consider an alcohol reduction in that severe kind, you should keep in mind, depending a bit on the technology, we have 
15 to 20% of volume loss. So when it is about alcohol-free wines, keep that in mind. Um, a driving cost factor is besides the processing, also the fact that we lose a quite high quantity of um, wine in terms of alcohol. The, work, the alcohol is not disappeared. The alcohol is still there in form of a spirit fraction. Then it's maybe interesting to consider a further use of that alcohol fraction and theoretically it's possible to reuse it as, as brandy. Now we are coming to um, another system. Um, the dealkoholization under vacuum is, is not a brand new topic. That's a point I want to add here at the point. Um, the first patent on the dealkoholization of wine was uh, granted here in Germany in 1903. 30 years later, there was the spinning cone column appearing, at least on the paper. So in 1936, there was a first scientific description of that process, what we know now as spinning cone column, issued. But it took then um, quite a long time till 1988 when the first commercial plant um, was constructed in Australia. Um, this plant um, has a widespread um, in the wine industry, nearly everyone heard about, but the number of people really understanding what's going on there um, that can be improved. Um, the spinning cone column is spread worldwide as it is widely used in many, many industry fields, mainly for aroma recovery, but also for processing of instant coffee and um, non beverage issues. Um, the wine industry is, is just a tiny market for them. In the wine industry, that plant is theoretically to be used for, practically used for dealkoholization um, or partial alcohol reduction of wine. Um, it could also be used for desulfurization of must. And theoretically, and it works uh, also for the aroma extraction when we have mark or yeast, but in that case, that's Recovered aroma is not allowed to be used in a wine, but maybe for some other processes. This picture here indicates um, a trial plant that we had now three times here in Geisenheim. Um, a trial plant or a plant for processing smaller lots. So here we could process 300 liters an hour. That gave us quite a good option to test with different varieties and under certain uh, process parameters. But as you see here in those pictures, not what we consider a mobile plant. So we had to use a mobile crane uploaded from a truck. And um, I would say that's not an economic, sensible um, option for maybe just having a, a small lot of wine treated. So what works for research, I would say, is not working quite well for, for the industry. Here, a uh, description for the flow or what's happening during the dealkoholization process by spinning cone column. So other than the vacuum rectification, where we have just one pass entering the wine from the bottom, taking out the alcohol-free wine uh, on the other side of the plant, here we're working with two passes. Here, just an example for you to understand a bit better what is happening. So in our case, we took 1,000 liters of red wine that had initially 14.3%. In the first run, we separated nearly 23 liter of a so-called pre-run, 
um, initially or in former days, it was called by the company Aroma. That caused too many misunderstandings in the wine industry. I will let you know why later on. That first pre-run fraction uh, was containing 65% of alcohol. Then in the second passage, that remaining 977 liter of wine were part of the very volatile aroma was gone, was distillated again in the same plant, but just by a bit more uh, rough circumstances, so a bit higher temperature there. Um, so here we worked with 30 degrees Celsius here, later on with 35 to 38 degrees Celsius. And due to the second passage, um, we could extract later on 201 liter of alcohol fraction containing 51% of alcohol. And then we had a fraction that was reduced to 1.2% alcohol. It is easily also possible to reduce it longer or wider down. In that case, you would just work under a little bit uh, higher temperature or slower passages of the wine. In our case, it was fine with us to have in the end 1.2%, 775 liters, and we planted back the fraction from the first run, that very volatile pre-run fraction. And due to that, we had in the end the plant 800 liter nearly with 3.1%. So you see here, around about 20% volume loss. Also due to the fact that we have here, compared to other distillation methods, a quite low alcohol content and still a lot of wine or wine water in that spirit fraction here. So a third distillation of that fraction could help to reduce the volume losses here, what some companies do nowadays. And here just a map from the company in charge of the uh, spinning cone column. And you see here where those plants are distributed worldwide. And I think we agree not all of those dots correspond to wine regions or severe uh, or bigger wine markets. It's applied for many, many other industries. It's a multi-purpose plant. Once more, I want to show you here the core part. So in that column, we have pairs of fixed and rotating cones. And with the wine floating downwards and in counterflow, a vapor going up. And with the rotation, we distribute the wine in a very thin film. We get an intense exchange between the steam taken up, the alcohol, but also other volatiles. Um, but it's also achieved um, with other technologies, like in that vacuum rectification, meaning we just have to have a little bit higher column um, and could theoretically and practically have the, the same effect in terms of alcohol reduction. So this slide here should just indicate you um, what is happening with the different fractions that I showed you and in terms of losses. So 10, 15 years ago here in Germany, for example, there were stories going around the spinning cone column is a machine to deconstruct the wine and then you can refractionate it, maybe like Frankenstein, um, a wine 
to whatever character you want. And that's just not going to work. And I try to explain you how. Are you enjoying this podcast? There is so much more high quality wine content available from Mama Jumbo Shrimp. Check out our new wine study maps, our books on Italian wine, including Italian Wine Unplugged, The Jumbo Shrimp Guide to Italian Wine, Sangiovese Lambrusco and other stories, and much, much more on our website, mamajumboshrimp.com. Now back to the show. Um, so here we have the different fractions appearing during the processing of the um, dealkalization by spinning con column in a two-step process. And the, the alcohol content with that fraction indicated in the next column. And then we have three different aroma components. From the left to the right, the volatility is increasing. And to simplify everything you see here, in the end, we see for a 2% alcohol reduction, more or less similar aroma losses. But the really interesting thing is, where is the very volatile aroma going? It's going to end up in that pre-run fraction. And that is secured in its loss. So here we see quite small loss in the end when it's just about 2% alcohol reduction due to the fact that we plant back with the spinning cone the very, very volatile aroma fraction. Okay. But the other point is the very, very volatile fraction during distillation, it's not necessarily the best. So when producing brandy, there is a reason for taking the pre-run aside. So that very volatile aroma is often coined by more solvent notes, etc. To a certain extent, it brings complexity, but if it is too much, it's not suiting us. Um, so forget about we strip a wine into uh, desired aroma categories and, and build it back. It's a very simple two-step distillation. And no matter if there's a rotating cone or not, that's not changing physical habits. Okay? And to sum that up, flavor losses of the process are similar for an alcohol reduction by 2%. The spinning cone columns first run separates the aroma purely according to volatility. So that's why I prefer calling it a preliminary run or a pre-run, like in distillation, and not calling it aroma that causes too many unnecessary uh, misunderstandings. Um, yeah. And here in that slide, you see, uh, sorry, here, uh, we forgot to translate it in, in English, the same aroma components and just with, uh, four different methods. It was always the same wine treated with four different technologies. So the spinning cone column, a vacuum rectification with a, um, industry company. And here, another industry company reducing us, um, the alcohol content. And here it was a reduction by reverse osmosis coupled with osmotic distillation in the second step. So to sum that up, vacuum rectification or vacuum distillation versus spinning cone, both methods are suitable for partial alcohol reduction and the production of alcohol-free wine. There are no clear sensory differences between those two technologies. Um, it could be actually way more interesting for you 
how far or how near is such a plant? How can I access um, a good service? Because something else is really important, the processing of that wine. A wine that is alcohol-free is really, really sensitive to a lot of um, spoilage microorganisms. Even though if you add back um, sulfur or cool it down, it's really, really fragile in terms of um, microbiological infections. So you should bring it as soon as possible uh, back to your winery, blend it to a normal alcohol degree back when it is about partial alcohol reduction. And when it is about an alcohol-free wine, you should bottle it as soon as possible in a sterile way. And here once more, um, wine has more than thousand different aroma components and it's just not possible to select desired aroma uh, out and increase it or separate it. Um, we just separate due to volatility. And now moving ahead um, to a bit more modern technology, membrane processes. There are different membrane technologies on the market nowadays and mainly for alcohol reduction there are two. The one is the so-called osmotic distillation. Those membranes are um, available worldwide now for gas management. In the same extent, the same membrane can be used for alcohol reduction. And it's also possible to desulfurize a must by them. Um, they all go back to the same manufacturer and the design of the, of the membrane or the membrane contactor is always the same. We have a very microporous cell wall, tiny tubes, and due to that, we get a lot of membrane surface in such a membrane contactor, and they're working like what we call or comparable to, to Gore-Tex membrane. So water is not going through that hydrophobic membrane, but just a gas. And that's to be used. And here, just an overview how simple those um, equipment or those plants can look like. Um, and there are many, many other manufacturers um, around selling those um, equipment. The core part is always the same kind of membrane. And that's going back to um, a company producing that hydrophobic membrane. Um, it's, very, it's a very, very simple process. I move back. On the one side um, of the membrane, we are working with the wine containing alcohol. And on the other side, as the so-called strip medium, we have a water. And the water should be degassed before, not to have gas from the water going into the wine. And then we circulate um, both sides in a loop till we reach an alcohol content that we desire until there's an equilibrium. So that explains us quite easily that we cannot reduce the alcohol content uh, in a higher extent. I think I have to accelerate a little bit to come to an end soon. Um, yeah, reverse osmosis is often uh, understood as a technology that can reduce the alcohol content alone. That's not that. That's not really true. Reverse osmosis is just, and here we can compare to. Uh, seep or to um, filter-like equipment um, that separates a fraction with small molecules just containing. And one of the smallest molecules we find in, in wine is water and ethanol. So ethanol water can pass the membrane. Due to that, in the first step, 
the wine is concentrated in alcohol as water actually permeates those membranes in a higher extent than the ethanol. Water is smaller. So what to do then? Then we have a fraction nearly aromaless but containing alcohol and water. And that fraction has to be reduced in alcohol by a second step, either distillation or a further membrane process like that osmotic distillation. Theoretically, you could also consider a replacement of water, but that's not legal um, for wine in Europe. So that so-called diafiltration is not possible. So we have to reduce um, by a further technology than the alcohol content from that waterish ethanol solution. And how does that look like? And there are service providers for that available. So on a card like that, uh, covered, um, a card is coming to your winery without the neighbor seeing it. And it's a system that can work completely independent on its own. So the only thing you need to run it is electricity and a little bit of water. But besides that, everything is on board. So here we have a stack of reverse osmosis membranes. And in that stainless steel cylinder here, we have for the second step, the dealkalization of that water ethanol permeate, a so-called osmotic distillation membrane. It comes, in our case, we tested it twice. It was a service provider from France that came to our winery and it actually worked out quite well for partial alcohol reduction. But for the processing of alcohol-free wine, those membrane technologies are not suitable. So um, there's no significant change in extracts uh, due to partial alcohol reduction by means of physical process in the wine. If we reduce just slightly the alcohol content, for 1% alcohol that we reduce, we concentrate the wine extract by around about 1.1%. That's not severe if we reduce the wine by 2 or 3%. It's a point when it is about a severe alcohol reduction by close to 0.5. If a vacuum distillation for alcohol uh, reduction takes place under the same parameters as usual for must concentration, however, because there are a lot of uh, equipment still around for vacuum distillation to concentrate must, we see uh, in general high losses of water, and that means we have higher losses than necessary from the wine that we treat. In addition to alcohol, all volatile components are also removed, depending on the volatility. Besides the loss of alcohol, we see with an alcohol reduction, an SO2 reduction, and in combination with the lack of or reduction of alcohol, a risk of microbiological contamination is given. And yeah, the sensory effects on a very quick um, way now, alcohol has a very complex effect on, on the wine sensory. So on the one hand, alcohol increases body fullness that's desired. Sweetness is also coming along with more alcohol, but on the other hand, um, it causes bitterness. So the majority of bitterness is actually influenced in a way high content by alcohol, higher than just by the pure phenol content. And wines with a higher alcohol content usually cause a certain heat perception. That's a direct physical interaction to the skin in our mouth. And on the other hand, when we have high alcohol contents, we reduce the fruitiness due to reduced volatility of the aromas in the medium. 
Due to that, also a reduced aroma intensity. The acidity perception is reduced. That's fatal when we see um, current statistics showing us alcohol is going up, acidity going down. And due to the sensory effect of alcohol, furthermore, the perceived acidity is going down furthermore. To a certain extent, saltiness is also reduced, but it's a quite difficult um, parameter. Um, yeah, here what I indicated, ethanol increases the bitterness, reduces the sourness, but way more the bitterness is increased. Um, another point that is often discussed or is often to be read um, in many, many magazines, the point of sweet spot. The idea is every wine should have an ideal alcohol content. And due to the technical reduction, we have it in our hand and we tested it intensively over the last years. And here, just an example for Riesling that had initially 14.6%. We turned it down to different alcohol levels and we had to, and we tested it with many panelists in different order, uprising, uh, rising, decreasing, randomized order. And in the end, the preference was just very, very inhomogeneous and widely spread once preferred. <coughs> Sorry. The really heavy uh, 15% Riesling, whereas another group preferred more the 12-point wine. Um, and there's not the wine producer or wine consumer, sorry, um, the preference is just too widely spread. So to sum up what we found out in terms of sensory aspects, um, alcohol reduction by 2% could not be significantly differentiated in repetition from the untreated control. And there we had 39 different wines that we tested against each other. That was four years work. We did a lot of tests. We compared a lot of technology. If we apply the technology in the right way, um, a 2% reduction is not to be differentiated in a blind test. And we repeated that also with so-called three AFC tests, um, where we give the panelists in that blind tasting uh, attribute to look at making the biggest difference even with that test that is very specific in, in, in discriminating we couldn't see significant differences when we reduced 2% that was quite a big range uh, but proved by many other uh, publications now um, internationally and even if we reduce 2% or 4% and compare them so the initial alcohol content did not make a difference um, if we reduce the alcohol content severely by, in our case, 4%, the taster's preference was very balanced between samples. So here it tends like we are shifting um, either consumer like a lighter style or a heavier. So quite interesting. It gives us both possibilities um, to, let's say, turn a an initial wine to two completely different wine styles. Okay, um, and now to come to an end, I would like to talk quickly about a project that we now started with alcohol-free wines and then alcohol-free wines. That's actually a really quickly changing and, and very interesting market. There's a lot of movement going on, um, not just here in Germany, I would say internationally. So the, the, um, interest is rising here quite. A lot. I don't have official numbers in terms of sales, but from what we realize here, um, 
a lot of questions are there. And that's why we uh, took this year quite a lot of work on improving an alcohol-free wine from our region here. And what tools do we have to improve them? So um, wines for the production of low and alcohol-free wines should not should have, first of all, a moderate alcohol content. So going from 15% down to, to zero, that's too intensive. So better having something a bit more moderate in alcohol before. Um, and due to the processing, we lose a certain amount of aroma. So the aroma, first of all, should be very complex um, to resist it a bit. So some aromas tend to suffer more, which are very volatile or which disappear quite quickly, also due to oxidation going along with the process. So for our case, a Riesling or Pinot Noir, which usually have a very wide range of different aroma components, they tend to be a bit more resistant. Um, and then... Enological strategy is to bring back some of the body fullness because that's the parameter that we lose the most with taking the alcohol out. Is for white wines we can work with CO2. Enological tannins to a certain extent, even for white wines, bring back a certain body fullness again. Manoproteins appear also quite promising to bringing it, especially in a mixture bit with enological tannins to a bit more rounder and longer mouthfeel again. And to a certain extent, sweetness. That's sometimes used excessively. We did um, two years ago a comparative trial here with alcohol-free sparkling wines in Germany. And the average alcohol-free sparkling wine was around about 50 gram of residual sugar. So um, far away from what a normal sparkling wine would be. Um, so I would say that common mindset is for that products is also try to reduce a bit the sweetness. And yeah, quickly to come to an end, um, I just want to share with you a um, cooperative project that we, Hochschule Gasenheim, did together with the local wine growers in our region. Um, we sat together, online first, of course, um, and created the ideas of producing together an alcohol-free wine with our experience in dealkoholization and with their actually need from customer side, we want to have an alcohol-free alternative, something a bit more wine-like than just a grape juice. Um, and we had the vision and we actually now brought it to a bottle, a premium Riesling from our region, from single vineyards and highlighting the Riesling grape and the Ranga region. Um, and it's now a real alcohol-free alternative. Um, and a current problem that we have, but it's a vision that we want to change that. Um, for alcohol-free wine, we are still out of the category uh, of wine here in Germany. So some terms like the region or like a winery cannot be used at least up today um, for alcohol-free wine. But here just some, some facts on the project. So we had 21 wineries persist, participating. We started with 10,000 bottles in the first round. Uh, from the next year on, there should also be products or the same product should be in food retail uh, with an exclusive label. And here's just um, the time 
frame. So from starting in March, making the decision, let's start. And the product is now on in the bottle being labeled in the different participating wineries. It will go uh, to the market in two weeks in November. And yeah, thank you very much for your attention. If you have questions, it's now the time. Um, otherwise, you find here also our contacts um, to send us a mail. And one point um, that I want to add here, here in Germany, we heard even here, climate is increasing, um, but we still have products with a moderate alcohol content. It's a niche market, but those products are still there. Um, and here we see indicated 8.5% alcohol. And as it is in the quality range of a cabinet, it's not reduced by technical intervention. It's grown there, but Due to that, we have to move to the cooler spots, move up the hills, go to the side valleys where it is a bit cooler. The question is, for how long can we still do that? Okay, thank you very much. We are open up for answering your questions by mail or by phone call. Thank you very much. Listen to the Italian Wine Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We're on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Himalaya FM and more. Don't forget to subscribe and rate the show. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps cover equipment, production and publication costs. Until next time, cheen cheen.